Smart Counsel is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Welcome to Smart Counsel, HIV 101. Smart Counsel is resources and perspectives on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese. I'm Joshua Moore. And we are here with a very special guest, Benjamin Garrett. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And for our listeners, would you say a little bit about uh, who you are, where you work, uh, what is your corner of the mental health social work field? Yeah, so definitely honored to uh, be here this evening uh, to talk about a very relevant uh, topic. Uh, I have the good fortune of working with uh, the nonprofit Cascade AIDS Project. Uh, my job title is Prevention with Positives Coordinator. The vast majority of my work is dedicated to serving individuals who, like myself, are living with HIV in our community. And then I am grateful, I guess, also to support our STI uh, screening services that we offer at our PRISM Health Clinic and also at various uh, outreach uh, locations, which include our local bathhouses. It's fantastic that we have a partnership there that promotes health. Yes, we need health there. And uh, very briefly, what is the PRISM Clinic? PRISM is a, a new, exciting venture for our organization. Essentially, our organization... For a long time, uh, Cascade AIDS Project has been the oldest and largest HIV services organization in the state of Oregon. The opening of PRISM Health, it was also an expansion of the uh, services uh, that our organization offers, trying to do the best that we can to avert as many new HIV, viral hepatitis, sexually transmitted infections before they occur. (laughs) And so with PRISM, we're now able to offer primary care services, uh, which anybody is welcome to come into our PRISM Health Clinic. We designed this clinic primarily to reach people who identify as LGBTQ+. That is super exciting to hear about a clinic that offers closer to that wraparound service effect or more holistic services or at least more than one type of service all in one spot, especially for more marginalized populations, people who have more societal barriers to accessing services. I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah, it is something that is rather historic uh, for us in the state of Oregon. It's the first clinic that is specifically dedicated to our LGBTQ plus community. And you're exactly right that, you know, we're in the first phase of, I guess, uh, what PRISM will become into the future. And there's the intention with this clinic, the way that we've built it, is to eventually bring in a wide array of services, which will include uh, behavioral mental health services, alcohol drug use programs, likely to include naturopathy, all of the things that help to promote, I guess, a healthy, thriving life. Right now, we only have the capacity to offer primary care and no-cost STI screenings that will evolve, I I guess, uh, as we move forward. Well, those are certainly some exciting directions to evolve toward behavioral health addictions. That's that's my turf, and naturopathy is just wonderful in every way possible. Again, thank you very much for doing that work. I really appreciate you and Cap and Prism and all the wonderful souls that are doing that labor. So today we are talking about things related to HIV/AIDS and related concepts. This episode, and this will be a two-parter deal, is geared around an HIV 101 introduction. And so again, our, our listener base are 
counselors, social workers, psychiatrists, counseling students, some of whom no doubt are familiar with this topic and some of whom no doubt are very new to this and may be wondering why are we talking about HIV at all? So starting at some basics, let's unpack some acronyms. What is HIV? What is AIDS? How are they different? Yeah, thank you for saving space uh, for that uh, question. So uh, HIV is an acronym. It stands for Human Immune Deficiency Virus. Uh, and uh, AIDS is also an acronym which stands for Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. Uh, and uh, HIV is a, a virus that a person uh, may contract uh, in, through uh, five uh, fluids, and those five are uh, seminal flu uh, fluid, uh, vaginal secretions, breast milk, uh, mother-to-child uh, transmission, and anal uh, secretions. Uh, and uh, uh, blood uh, as well. Uh, anal secretions is actually a sixth one that was recently added uh, by the uh, Centers for uh, Disease Control. They felt like they had enough uh, evidence uh, to um, state that uh, transmission can uh, happen through that fluid. Uh, it is not transmitted through um, spit, through uh, kissing, unless somebody perhaps has a mouthful of blood and the other person that they're kissing has a mouthful of blood as well. Um, it's not uh, transmitted through uh, sitting on a, a toilet or sharing a glass of water. Uh, I mention those things because uh, there's um, always recent updates uh, evaluating, I guess, people's um, understanding about how HIV is transmitted, transmitted how it's not. Um, we do know that we have a lot of work to do in terms of education because uh, those things that I mentioned, like sitting on a toilet or sharing a glass of water, the vast majority of Americans still feel as though HIV can be transmitted those ways. Yeah, I remember hearing at least one account of, I forget what the specific context of it was, but a person with HIV was outed in some capacity and then no longer invited to somebody's house for dinner on a regular basis because they did not want to share silverware or share plates because they were afraid of contracting. But it sounds like that's not actually a way that this virus can be transmitted. Yes, uh, or a lot of uh, health conditions, it brings up... Um, a lot of different uh, beliefs, a lot of different uh, misinformation. Sometimes there is fear uh, that is brought into it, especially when it's a health condition that is uh, stigmatized or that has the uh, potential to be passed uh, person to person. And so I think that uh, can often guide people to base decisions on alternative facts. Uh, sure, they have good intentions and perhaps don't even maybe acknowledge the harm that they might be causing to the other individual. Yeah, and I do want to talk more about myths and stigma, uh, but I have questions about more acronyms. So oftentimes you hear about STDs, sometimes about STIs, sometimes about STDs-STIs, what is the significance of both of those? How are they different the same? Yeah, it's uh, fascinating. So usually, I guess, personally, I feel it important for me to use the acronym uh, STIs, um, which uh, the I stands for infection, uh, the S sexually, uh, and the T uh, transmitted, so sexually transmitted infections. You're exactly right that uh, this perhaps is uh, relatively new in terms of cultural dynamics, I guess, about how acronyms are or are not used and whether they are approached in a compassionate 
person-centered way, or they actually perhaps further perpetuate marginalization or stigma. So I I don't, you know, want to make a false uh, assumption that use of STD, sexually transmitted disease, I don't want to make the claim that that does harm because I think, you know, people that use STD certainly have good intent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that may be something that resonates best depending on the uh, person that's being served. It does seem, though, as though on a macro level, there is, I guess, more of a shift to encouraging use of STI. Uh, when talking about a sexually transmitted infection. So moving away from, I guess, how maybe triggering the word uh, disease um, yeah, can, can, can be. Diseases are more threatening, but infections could be treated or something like that. Or or even cured. Or even cured. <clears throat> yeah. mm-hmm. and, and there are lots of things that were considered sexually transmitted diseases that are no longer incurable. Yes, that's a very good point. Syphilis, uh, mm-hmm. a very good example. Speaking of syphilis. Yes. That's just a great conversation starter. Facepalm. Yes. (laughs) So I know that HIV is not the only STI out there. What are some of the different STIs that are lumped together in this category and in that spectrum, because I imagine it's a spectrum, where does HIV fall in intensity, danger, prevalence? We're in a very hopeful time, I think, with respects to uh, HIV um, we now know, I guess, with all of the advances that we've made with what we can do medically for treatment care and also what we can do in terms of uh, prevention, medical interventions, we've come a very, very long way. Uh, with me, I guess, in my life living with HIV, uh, I take my medication on a daily basis. It translates into me having what's referred to as an undetectable viral load. It doesn't mean that I'm not living with HIV. I still have HIV in my body. It's just uh, the medication is controlling it down to such a low level that when I go in, have a ton of blood taken out of my arm, they run it through a machine, the machine cannot pick up the HIV in my blood. The Centers for Disease Control uh, recently, actually earlier this month, uh, announced that the science is there to show that undetectable equals untransmittable. I did read that. I read that too. Yeah, very, very, uh, very powerful, especially I think for people living with HIV across the board to have an added incentive, an added reason to want to uh, take our medications uh, on a daily basis. I mentioned in terms of prevention, uh, it's relatively new. It's been around, I think, I guess for now four years, the option of pre-exposure prophylaxis, often referred to as uh, PrEP, whereby a person can take one pill once a day that is scientifically proven to be more effective than consistent condom use at averting HIV infection. Doesn't avert, you know, the other sexually transmitted infections. You make a very good point. Um, We have seen, I guess, uh, here locally, but across our country, a very sharp increase in especially uh, syphilis and gonorrhea, although chlamydia is is high too. Part of that may actually be a good thing in that it may mean that as more people have gained access to health care, because of primarily the Affordable Care Act, maybe there is more screenings that are happening or there is more sexually transmitted infections that are being detected because a person has symptoms 
and they don't have to worry about going bankrupt with yes. going in to see their medical provider. Well, I, and I know the cost of PrEP is fairly high. That one's, that one's debatably available or not, depending on your socioeconomic status. That is very true. That's We've made uh, advances, I guess, with healthcare access, and there mm-hmm. continues to be, I guess, profit motive within the healthcare system that perhaps uh, doesn't distribute equitable access. <laughs> Wait, healthcare <laughs> is not provided equitably? What? When did this happen? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> All right. So that's getting into some of the uh, some of the myths that go around HIV. I think my conceptualization of HIV has historically been, before I knew a lot of things, that it was the the king daddy of all STIs and and it's pretty much a death sentence if you had it. But now it sounds like with some of the advances in medicine that we've developed that it's no longer a death sentence like it used to be and maybe not even the most severe infection to live with. Yeah, it is uh, Yeah, very safe to make that um, assertion that, uh, I mean, I fully anticipate, I guess, that I'll live as long of a life uh, as though I were HIV negative. When I go in to see my doctor, uh, our conversations in terms of what I should be doing for my health focus more on, I guess, me needing to quit uh, smoking, which mm. I, I should quit smoking. You should quit smoking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our different forms of self-care. Some have yeah, more do. drawbacks than others. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's looking more now at a person's overall health and what may be beneficial or uh, present negative outcomes. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I mean, essentially with the vast majority of treatment options now for HIV being one pill once a day. Sure, there's, you know, there's still quite a few people who are taking more than one pill and taking it more than once a day. But that acknowledged a lot of it has shifted to be one pill once a day. If we ensure that uh, the barriers are addressed and resolved to a person being able to take that one pill once a day, then you should anticipate yeah, that the person um, hopefully will live uh, a healthy, thriving life as long as those they were HIV negative. Yeah, that's really exciting. I'm really excited to hear that. And one last clarifying question back to the acronyms and things. Uh, so, so we talk about HIV, we talk about AIDS, and those are not the same, if I understand right. That's a very good point, yeah, because I think there is still confusion, and uh, you often will um, see, I guess, uh, people referring to the HIV virus as the AIDS virus or getting an AIDS uh, um, test, uh, which uh, are both, you know, based on mis- misinformation. Acquired uh, immune deficiency syndrome is essentially the syndrome that 99% of people who contract the HIV virus will likely develop seven to 10 years after contraction of the HIV virus. And, and that's without any type of medical uh, intervention. It's uh, both, I guess, a hopeful time in terms of the progress that we've made locally, nationally, globally with addressing HIV and AIDS. Uh, I want to, though, mention that there are parts of the world where healthcare access, there are very significant barriers to it. And the vast majority of people living with HIV across the globe, despite the progress that we made, uh, still do not have access to the medications that I'm taking every day. For a variety of different reasons, we made a lot of progress 
13 million globally currently on treatment. They estimate that there is 36 million of us uh, who are currently uh, infected. Mm. 22 million of us are infected aware of our status. We still have to close that gap of a lot of people uh, in need of both screening to identify that they have the HIV virus and after it has been identified doing the best that we can to break down the barriers to the life-saving treatment so we can avert AIDS. I'm of the belief that nobody today, I guess, who uh, contracts HIV should go on uh, and develop uh, AIDS, but we're 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 not there uh, yet. Hopefully, yeah. we'll get there. It's a thing to work toward, but there's there's barriers. There's lack of education. There's lack of finances. There's a lot of things. Speaking of people who are infected, and, and parenthetically, what is the most appropriate way to refer to a person like that? It's a very good point. Yeah, because I think it's also looking, I guess, at good intentions behind, say, like the STI. Uh, right use of that versus STDs. Um, Personally, I feel uh, like it's best to refer to a person as a person living with HIV. Now, you might see, though, the use of HIV-positive people uh, and there, I don't, you know, assume that there's any ill intent in that. I think it's very similar to say, like, uh, conversations um, about alcohol and drug use, mm-hmm. and ensuring that first we're talking about the beautiful complexities of everything that a person is first and foremost, and then the component of the uh, certain aspect of um, the, the the person itself. So. This has been done very effectively with people that work in uh, harm reduction, uh, where I feel a lot of providers intentionally say person who injects drugs and not injection drug user. Not that there's any ill intent on the part of somebody who uses injection drug user, but I think there is value in ensuring that the complexities of the beauty of the person is upheld first and foremost mm-hmm. before we go into. So even just in our grammar, the way we form our sentence structures can imply unconsciously that this is the most important thing about them. And in the healthcare field, their nurses and doctors are just trying to get to the next thing. And so they go for the shortest thing. But in short, they accidentally dehumanize people. Was that an fair assessment or from someone who came from the medical field? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that's a very accurate assessment uh, that uh, it can result, I guess, or it can be received in a way that creates a uh, trauma. That yeah. is maybe a micro yeah. or sometimes a macro aggression because it perhaps emphasizes one component of a person's life versus the emphasis being on the complexity of what makes a person beautiful. And having, you know, worked in five hospitals and being a therapist, I can attest that hospitals are traumatic. And part of that is the way (laughs) that you're, you're handled by doctors and nurses and, and that's, they're doing the best that they can, which is also a totally separate problem. So we recently, we recently had a, had a debate about, should we refer to people in recovery as, as addicts or addicted Mm. people? Kind of that similar thing. It's very controversial. I definitely landed on the side of, no, we shouldn't identify them primarily by their addiction. And the the counter to that was, well, by identifying with their addiction, they also identify into community, which... Eh, which it's, it's so my, my response was more mixed, but, you know, agreed that they're... Mm-hmm. To say, like, well, that person's an addict, it's like saying that's the most important piece of information about them. That's the most important part of who they are to me. 
mm-hmm. you know, the therapist, the doctor, the nurse, whatever. In this case, talking about infectious diseases, granted, I know with addictions, there's a lot of stigma. I feel like there's even more stigma attached to infectious diseases. So in, mm-hmm. in this matter, it seems you know even more essential to be very careful with our wording because... You know, people living with HIV with with infectious diseases are already stigmatized and are already irrationally feared by people who don't know. So really making that point, making that effort to say, no, you're not an AIDS victim. You're a person Mm -hmm. living with HIV feels really important. And like it actually makes a really big difference. I think so. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, culture uh, continues to uh, evolve uh, every second of every day across the uh, planet. Um, I think uh, it's uh, beneficial, I guess, to assume good intentions uh, across the board and to adapt uh, the language that uh, we're using uh, as culture evolves uh, as well. And we go through this continual learning process. You have a a kind of a very interesting perspective of always saying, you've said it a few times, assuming the best about other people's intentions. Oh, yes. I I do appreciate that about you. I know that's (laughs) intensely, you know, uh, common, but but that seems to be, you know, uh, I go back to uh, self-esteem, self-compassion lady. Nah, it's not coming to me. On the podcast? No, 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 no. She would never come to our podcast. Not yet. No, no, sorry. No. I'm trying to remember her name, but I can't remember. Uh, she she does whole holistic wellness. Uh, she's a public speaker on holistic wellness. And uh, she talks often about trying to assume the best about other people's intentions and then seeking to clarify. Because oftentimes, assuming the worst about people gets things escalated and, you know, and, and hurt feelings. And then, and then we do draw lines and we do polarize, but, but that's unnecessary. If we assume the best about each other and seek to clarify, oftentimes people want to communicate positive things and they want to be understood and they want, but, but that breaks down. I don't know. I can't really recall her. It would be, it would have been helpful if I could remember her name, but I can't. An opportunity, I guess, to create an opening to continue a conversation or an opportunity, I guess, to employ divisiveness. And there seems to be yeah. a lot of the latter swirling around in the news cycle as, as, as of late. So speaking of persons living with HIV, I think another, another myth is that it's, it's just that disease that gay men have. But in reality, who are the people who are most frequently infected and who are the people who are most vulnerable? It may come as, I guess, uh, surprising to some, to others perhaps not so, but the vast majority of people living with HIV on a global level are female identifying. Mm. That uh, is not true, I guess, in the United States, nor uh, here in Oregon, nor in uh, Portland. HIV continues to have the highest disproportionate uh, impact on men who have sex with men, could be gay identified, queer, bi, pan, variety of different uh, ways that uh, men who have sex with men may or may not uh, identify. Certainly, uh, if you go into subcategories and look at uh, race or ethnicity, Hispanic, uh, Latino, Latinx, uh, men who have sex with men have an even higher disproportionate impact, and then uh, black African American have an even higher disproportionate impact. So I think, you know, when it comes to the uh, services that we're offering, whether it's prevention, treatment, uh, or um, care services, I think it makes sense that we distribute them, I guess, as equitably as we possibly can and ensure that we're putting the vast majority of resources into reaching people whom bear the or communities that bear the highest disproportionate uh, impacts. HIV is a virus that does not uh, discriminate. 
Uh, it's a virus that likes uh, a warm uh, human body. It doesn't really care <laughs> right. who occupies that body or how they identify or who they might have sex with or per- perhaps use uh, injection uh, drugs with. And that being acknowledged, uh, the virus, I think, historically uh, and continues t- uh, to this day to have the highest disproportionate uh, impacts where uh, inequities are the most uh, pronounced, where we have to make the biggest difference with addressing social determinants of health. So one of my other questions is, what are the, well, I had originally framed it as two questions, but I feel like they, they fuse. It was, you know, what are factors that increase one's vulnerability to contracting HIV, mm-hmm. as well as what are barriers to getting care services and medication? And it almost sounds like those factors are going to be very, are going to have a lot of overlap. So what would you say are the, are the barriers to accessing appropriate care? Well, uh, I would say, yeah, the barriers to, to me, but I feel like, yeah, for a lot of my colleagues are uh, the social determinants of health. If there are more pronounced barriers to accessing education, accessing health care, housing is certainly a, a, a huge one that's having a very significant impact on lots and lots of people in, in Portland right now and lots of people across our country. Access to transportation, to uh, enough food, all of those factors, I think, are the most significant in terms of placing a person at perhaps heightened risk for contracting HIV, viral hepatitis, sexually transmitted infection, or uh, not. Uh, And I think the same holds true uh, when it comes to uh, care and treatment. I didn't mention explicitly uh, sexual uh, behaviors or decisions, uh, and that's an intentional on my part. I, I'd, while sure, the num- if the number of sexual partners does increase, technically it does also increase the likelihood that a person may be at risk for HIV, viral hepatitis, sexually transmitted infections. I think, though, it is more the social determinants than the sex that a person may or may not have mm-hmm. with another person or other individuals that is the biggest uh, factors. I mentioned it because uh, concurrency is a big thing. Um, and concurrency being that if the pool of HIV within my community means that if I have sex with one person because people within my sexual network, um, perhaps uh, uh, many have the virus and have, have not accessed health care, so the virus goes unidentified, then uh, I could, yeah, technically just have sex with one person one time and I might contract the virus. Right, because of that person's other sexual partners. Yes, yeah. Not, and in that equation, it sort of throws out the whole notion that uh, if a person um, limits their sexual partners, uh, mm-hmm. well, perhaps they're going to be less likely to contract HIV. Part of that is true, and part of that is also not true when it looks at more like, I guess, the pool of virus within or the, the uh, prevalence of sexually transmitted infection within a tight-knit sexual network. And it's more a conversation about concurrency. I think when it comes to who a person has sex with or not, who a person may be using injection drugs with or not, I think it can trickle into a, con- a good intended conversation that can lead to shaming. And any time that we go down the path of shaming, I think that 
despite good intention, it might uh, further marginalize though that were those that we're seeking to support and uplift the most. Shame doesn't usually result in good long-term motivation. I think it doesn't even do very good at short-term motivation. Definitely not. So speaking of contracting, um, maybe let's let's debunk uh, a few myths here. So, so specifically talking about how one can and cannot contract HIV. <clears throat> so, so, one, so one myth says that you can get HIV from kissing. But we talked about that earlier. Sounds like that's not actually the case because HIV does not transmit through saliva. Yeah, so yeah, that is true. Yeah, that HIV is not transmitted through uh, saliva, which I, I understand how that confusion, though, at the same time is created because it's very common rapid HIV tests um, where people can swab uh, the tests uh, through their mouth. It's actually available as a uh, at-home test kit now, which I think is fantastic. Awesome. There's cost barriers to that, but I think it's great, you know, provide as many options to empower people to take an action um, to promote their health. Uh, but yeah, so they can run that swab. So if I ran that swab through my mouth, what it's looking for is the HIV antibodies. It's not looking for the virus itself. Mm-hmm. Okay. We do have tests that I go in and I have blood drawn from my arm where it is actually looking for the virus itself. When a person gets tested for HIV, that's not the case. It's looking for the uh, antibodies. So that's why when the oral swab is applied, that can produce a positive result. And I think that that lends itself to the misinformation associated with, well, I tested positive because, you know, ran the swab through my mouth. That must mean that, you know, you can transmit it through saliva. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. (laughs) So other myths are that you can get HIV from skin contact or from sitting on a toilet seat or things like that. But those are not true either. Uh, yes, yeah, those are not true. And all of those things, yeah, continue, I guess, to be the main belief of the majority of Americans that yeah. HIV can be transmitted uh, all of those ways. Highlights, I think, yeah, how much work we need to do in terms of uh, education. Right. So, so in a very real sense, we should not regard people living with HIV as literal untouchables. They're actually <laughs> quite safe to touch, hold hands, <laughs> hug. Even guess because the virus, this virus does not transmit that way. Similarly, there's a myth that says HIV can be transmitted through sneezing and coughing. Yes, yeah, that that definitely uh, is a is a myth uh, that's out there as well. Yes, I, it definitely, there is no um, possibility that a person could uh, contract uh, HIV through somebody living with HIV, having a, a cold uh, and sneezing on them or coughing up an unintended loogie. Yes, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe other, other diseases possibly, but not HIV. Yeah, maybe the cold. <laughs> maybe yes. the cold, yeah. yes. <laughs> Actually, I have one of those right, right now. And it, it may be uh, shocking or unsurprising to some, but sort of, you know, with the undetectable equals untransmittable, I'm very fortunate in my personal life uh, to uh, share it with my uh, HIV negative husband. And I'll be very honest that we do not use condoms in our relationship. He takes pre-exposure prophylaxis. I'm undetectable. Whether others feel as though that's a responsible choice on our part, I honor however a person outside of the two of us may feel. For us, it's a decision that we're very, very comfortable with based upon the uh, current uh, medical scientific uh, facts. And you have a lot of facts, a lot of information to go into a decision like that really intentionally, really carefully. 
Yes, yeah, it's not uh, something, I guess, that we uh, took uh, lightly in terms Mm -hmm. of uh, the uh, decision, and uh, it's a decision that uh, we feel uh, brings us uh, closer in our uh, relationship, again, honoring how anybody outside the two of us may feel. So... Stop me if this stop me if I'm getting off base here. So so you so you and your husband have been able to make that choice and it's a safe one for you and it's well researched. It seems like another thing that can happen though when a same sex couple or when any 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 couple where both partners are are living with with a virus, they may say, Oh, we're both we're both infected, we don't need to practice safe sex anymore. You know, some some sources may may issue a caution against that. Why why is that? Why would one choose to exercise caution versus not in that sort of scenario? Yeah, I think that comes down to a scenario where uh, if a person, when they initially contract HIV, contract a resistant form of the virus, Mm -hmm. technically, if they're with another person who is living with HIV, who is not taking medications, I want to, you know, emphasize that it would also be not taking medication. And the other person contracted a naive, wild uh, type of virus, meaning that it wasn't resistant to any of the current available medications. Technically, it could be possible for that person to be reinfected by their partner with the resistant uh, strain. Now, we have so many different options in terms of medications available today to uh, treat HIV that even in the instance that somebody contracts a resistant strain, there is still going to be options uh, Mm -hmm. available that are highly effective. I think... (laughs) It would be likely very rare where that would occur, that type of uh, scenario. Um, At least hopefully if we are ensuring that we do as best we can uh, to make medical care accessible for people living with HIV, it would be very, very rare where a person with wild-type virus would be in a scenario where they would contract a resistant strain from another partner. I do think it brings up the point of, you know, whether two partners uh, choose to be mutually monogamous, what is the dynamics within their relationship? Uh, do they make the decision to have an open relationship? Are there certain agreements that are established? And in that type of equation, it does, uh, I hope, highlight, I guess, the increase of importance for ongoing uh, sexually transmitted infection uh, screenings. Because the bigger uh, issue I feel at play there would be if one partner contracts syphilis and if it is not identified, well, syphilis, similar to the progression of the HIV virus developing into AIDS being about 7 to 10 years with no medical intervention, with syphilis, if a person is HIV negative, they typically uh, would have around seven to ten years before syphilis would transfer to uh, the brain uh, and start to cause some uh, pretty significant irreversible brain damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, like was mentioned, syphilis used to be incurable, and it would result in uh, you know people having strokes uh, and passing uh, mm-hmm. away because of those strokes. Well, yeah, in that scenario, if a partner contracts syphilis, uh, if we're not ensuring access to medical care, 
to uh, identify it um, for a person living with HIV, that window of incubation period, I guess I, I would say, uh, could be shortened to uh, the first uh, year. So then yeah, they transmit perhaps syphilis on to their partner. If it's not identified within a year for a person living with HIV, it could transfer yeah, to uh, yeah. the brain and cause significant or irreversible right. damage. So even if both partners are both living with HIV, they <clears throat> could potentially have different strands. And there are still other other STIs out there that could be happening, uh, especially if it's in a in a non monogamous relationship context. So so it sounds like you know relationship structure should be a thing that should be evaluated, mutually agreed upon by the couple. That regular testing should happen. That barriers aside, they should be accessing appropriate medications, and those are all factors that will then further reduce the risk. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I think the most important part of that equation is, I guess, open, honest conversations with one's partner. The more, I guess, the uh, dynamics can be established to ensure that uh, partners are supported, I guess, with having those type of uh, conversations. I think it behooves everyone's interest. I think open conversation behooves everybody. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. so we've talked about some myths about how... HIV is contracted. Uh, are there any others that you know of that we've missed that should get mentioned? Oh, gosh, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, boy, uh, the list of uh, myths uh, uh, abounds, um, and uh, it's there on the uh, treatment uh, side uh, just as well as it is on the uh, uh, transmission. Um, like you'll often hear, you know, there's like a snake oil is a common one that comes up and or uh, if you take a a shower I guess after uh, having sex and you clean out your insides that that'll avert uh, infection Um, and you know I think it lends itself to there is uh, an element of like it or not fear that is associated with infectious disease and whenever something I guess triggers a fearful belief or uh, reaction, uh, I feel it can lend itself to miss being at the forefront of one's mind or alternative facts guiding decisions versus what we actually uh, scientifically know. So what are the legitimate ways in which a person can contract HIV? Certainly uh, exposure to uh, uh, blood and blood, I guess, where there isn't, the, I want to include, you know, what the CDC mentioned earlier this month with the undetectable equals untransmittable. So I think it, that's a significant factor. Um, but uh, blood and vaginal secretions, seminal fluid, breast milk, mother-to-child transmission, and the fairly recent addition by the CDC of anal uh, secretions on, onto that list. So any activity uh, that may lead to the exposure to any one of those bodily fluids when the person living with HIV it does not have an undetectable viral load uh, can facilitate uh, transmission. Right. And a couple points to highlight in there. So you mentioned mother-to-child transmission via breast milk. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that it's also possible through the placental barrier in utero as well. Uh, yes, yeah. Mother-to-child uh, transmission. There's a lot of new things coming down the road for that, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's super exciting stuff, too. 
Yeah, that's one of the areas where I, I feel on a global level, but certainly on a, a local uh, level and, and a national one, I think we've made huge progress uh, at averting as many of those mother-to-child transmissions as possible. That acknowledged, you know, the most recent data that I saw was, I think, in 2015, and we still had 50,000 mother-to-child transmissions on a global scale. Uh, but still, you know, I mean, uh, in Oregon, we've only had one within the past decade, uh, one which uh, there was, I feel safe to say, multiple areas of opportunity within systems that did, did not be uh, addressed that made this a unique and unfortunate situation that hopefully will highlight the uh, gaps that needed to be filled uh, to ensure that that didn't happen. And this, this might be a little bit, you know, too new or off topic, but uh, I do some reading occasionally on medications that work more favorably with young immune systems like zero to three or zero to five that might actually be able to clear it from the system. And they're not saying for sure that it'll go away forever, but that's their hope. At least that's what the articles are showing. seems kind of exciting. Yeah, I, I appreciate you mentioning that. We're very fortunate that the uh, president of our board of directors with Cascade AIDS Project is one of the lead researchers mm-hmm. at OHSU Excellent. working specifically yep. on to see if, yeah, there's more things that we can do medically to avert more mother-to-child transmissions. A hopeful time with HIV. Yeah, definitely hopeful. And the other mode of transmission I wanted to emphasize also is through blood and that could be through touching a wound or through or wound to wound I think or wound to wound yeah. yes or through needle sharing that's another that's another important one to mention and I feel like these are important to mention because again HIV is not strictly a sexual a sexually transmitted infection it's it's a fluid transmitted infection and so there are drug users that are very vulnerable to this and there are first responders hospital workers that are also vulnerable to this because yeah. they work around <laughs> fluids and blood i can share a personal story <laughs> yeah. yes yeah yeah, I got stuck once. Yeah. <laughs> right. I got pumped full of drugs. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that highlights, yeah, that there is also post-exposure prophylaxis, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I went through that experience. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are those are the facts, as plain and simple mm-hmm. as we can make them. Yeah, I mean, I, the more, I guess, that we can promote and uplift uh, access to uh, syringes, access to cl- uh, clean uh, works across the board, we are making definitely one of the best most cost-effective investments that we can uh, into the uh, health of our uh, overall uh, community. Uh, in Oregon, especially, I think, in Portland, there's areas of the state where we need to be doing a better job of making uh, syringes uh, available. In Portland, I feel like we're very fortunate that we've, I think, done a very good job of making a syringe uh, access uh, mm-hmm. as um, equitable as uh, possible. And the number of yeah. uh, new HIV infections and hep C infections that uh, per- perhaps have been averted as a result of making this cost-effective investment is just, it's, it's, it's huge. Sounds yeah. like there's not a lot of resources that go as far as those resources. It has a big impact, something that the amount of effort and cost associated with it. Uh, there's not a lot of things in life that have that much impact. Does that make sense? The impact, <laughs> so I'll try again, the impact of the uh, resources and time utilized have a bigger impact than a lot of other services rendered. 
Yes, yeah, that's uh, it's it's uh, across the board. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the actual dollar amount is, sure. but mm-hmm. uh, boy, it is huge. Like if you're looking, you know, at a quality adjusted life year model, right? <laughs> uh, the more that you invest in making uh, syringes available uh, to people who are choosing to use injection drugs, the injection drug use is going to happen. Whether people believe that it should happen or that it should not happen, and I hope that eventually we get to a place of uh, what the World Health Organization has been recommending for years to decriminalize substances across the board and to decriminalize uh, sex work, Uh, because these two things, they've been happening for a long time. They're happening today. Uh, They will happen into the future. The question is, is I guess, what environment do we create to ensure that people are supported with making healthy uh, decisions uh, in those uh, areas? Or what do we do to further marginalize people in a cost of fortune when marginalization is right. a choice? And they're cut off from protective services and things like that because it's criminalized. And I, I think it's sometimes worth on an education level describing that there is a difference between legalizing something and decriminalizing something. The language suggests that there isn't a lot of help in marginalizing you over this but it doesn't mean that we're affirming it as a great choice. You know, it's just a language difference, perhaps. That's a good nuance to consider. So we are just about out of time for this episode. Uh, But Ben, before we wrap up, uh, considering this is sort of an HIV 101 introduction to the topic, are there any other tidbits that you would present to our listeners that are essential to know? If this is the only podcast they listen to, what else is important for them to know? I I would say this applies not only to HIV, but I think it applies to a variety of different services. Uh, And it's a theme that we touched on, uh, and thank you, you know, for the questions about it, uh, that uh, I think, you know, so much of our time and energy is focused, I guess, on one specific aspect of an individual that it can be natural to lose sight of the complexities of what makes a person beautiful to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think the more that across the board, whether it's alcohol, drug use, whether it is HIV and what may place a person at heightened uh, risk for contracting a sexually transmitted infection or viral hepatitis, the dynamics that we put in place, I think it is always in our best interest to see the complexities of how beautiful a person is and work from that point on to everything else before we go into any discussion about uh, an individual aspect. Mm, I love that, recognizing the inherent beauty in a person before looking at the brokenness. I mean, they both exist together, but if we prioritize and honor and venerate the beauty, then there's more of a helpful relationship that we can accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, the people that uh, we're fortunate enough to serve uh, are incredibly beautiful by uh, design. And the more that we emphasize that, I think the more that we make uh, a substantial impact. I think so. All right. Well, I'm going to call that there. But thank you again, Ben, for sharing your expertise and your perspectives. And thank you, listener, for following us. Uh, Do be sure and follow us on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Smart Council 601. And stay tuned for next time. We will be talking more about infectious diseases and you will not want to miss it.
please be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. We love your feedback and let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at Smart Council 601, and you can email us your questions and comments and feedback at smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Joshua Moore can be found on the web at neurofeedbackcare.com and Reese Pasimio can be found on the web at newpatterncounseling.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This episode was mastered by Julie Patterson. Smart Counsel has been produced by Reese Pasimio and Joshua Moore. You're-